You're listening to the Imago Day podcast with Joseph Terry. So, you know, we, we've been in James and, and I just kind of want to touch again on the key theological points, the, the, the major themes in the book of James. Such a great, great letter written uh, by this man who was a pastor in the church in Jerusalem. They called him Nabi Nees James. Church, church historians uh, um, have collected sayings about James, Nabi Nees James, because he was known throughout town to be a particularly prayer warrior, like a particularly powerful prayer warrior. James was known to be on his knees constantly in prayer. He was on his knees so many times that when you would see his legs, you could see the, 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 the knobs and the, and the dents and the bruises because he would be hours, hours on the concrete in prayer. James is a man who, who knows, knows the prayer life. And, and, and he's writing out of that space. James is writing out of that, that place of prayer. He's a prayer warrior. And so James is straight up with certain things and and forthright and commanding and gracious, but he keeps it real. And it comes out of a place of intimacy with God. And so how can we summarize James? How can we uh, capture all the main points of what we see in this book? And on your handout, you see the key theological points there. Most major teaching most of the major teaching instruction in the book of James can be directly traced back to Jesus's teaching. For instance, in places like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's wisdom, who is wisdom personified, is the source of true wisdom. And so James indirectly is always pointing us back to the teaching and to the life of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. James is always pointing us back to the life and to the teachings of Jesus Christ. He does that implicitly, right? He does that implicitly. It's not a direct, he's not saying Jesus said, but when you really read through James and then you read it side by side, with what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount or in the Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke. The Sermon on the Mount can be found in the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke, which is very interesting, right? A sermon on the top of a mountain and a sermon on, the, on a plain, on a level sphere. It's a deep theological vision there. But if you line up what James is saying in the book of James and Jesus is teaching, you see a lot of profound similarity. And so James is echoing the teachings of Christ. And he's echoing not just his teachings, but even the life of Christ. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus. This is James related to Yeshua, Jesus. And we know through the Gospels that James, along with other siblings and family members, probably except Mary, his mother, at times thought that Jesus was crazy. This is in the gospel. This is in the gospel. They're like, this brother's, he's, he's on another level. I don't know. So, <laughs> like, I got some uncles. I'm just like, that brother's crazy. I don't know. Right? <laughs> like, this brother's gone. He's, I don't know. I, I'm not related to him. I don't know. And um, 
And so James uh, knows full well what it means to, in a sense, to, to doubt Jesus's mission from the other side. And James comes to faith in Christ after the resurrection. But really doubts, doubts the mission of Jesus while Jesus was alive and doing his teaching. But what things that James noticed was that James, that James noticed that Jesus was radical in his communal efforts. That, James, that Jesus, for instance, treats everyone equally. And you see that coming through in the teaching of James, in the book of James. When James, remember that, that, that time when we read where he said, you know, if a, a person of high social and financial standing comes into the church and you give them a prized seat, oh, brother, sister, come sit in the front. And, and those who come in not too good smelling and looking, oh, you could sit over there in the back or you could sit over here near my feet. James says, you hypocrite. This is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way of the kingdom. And James is not only giving us this theological vision, this amazing ethic of what it means to treat everyone as the image and likeness of God, because to be human is to be an image bearer of God. He's not only giving us that amazing ethic theologically, but this is coming also out of his own experience with Jesus. And you and I may take for granted, you know, we're living in a different social um, context, right? Different historical context where um, a multimillionaire can intermingle with somebody who's living on welfare. That's not necessarily a scandal for us in our culture, right? We, we, we're rubbing shoulders with and crossing paths with all kinds of people, high and low on the social, economic, and, and, and political plane. But in this world, in the, in the political world, in the social world, in the historical context, that would have been scandalous, right? Like men and women do not associate in public, right? Sinners are clearly delineated uh, and identified by the religious elite, and the religious elites stay far from the sinners, right? The Samaritans, the half-breed Jews, they, you know, they're over there, and we're real Jews, we don't intermingle, and what you see, what we see in the gospel is that Jesus is breaking all of the barriers <laughs> effortlessly. Well, I mean, even his apostles, even his disciples at times are scandalized. Like you see, for instance, in the gospel of John, when Jesus is talking to the lady at the well, the Samaritan woman, and, and, and the apostles come back bringing food and they're like, they see that he's talking to this lady and, and they're scandalized. So this is a wild thing. Like what's going on? And so James is giving us this amazing vision here. And so we see that most of his teaching is shaped by Jesus himself, the wisdom uh, teacher who is wisdom personified. The second bullet here is the word discipline. And we're going to hone in on this word today as we sum up James. Discipline. I mean, James is big on discipline. This dude is huge on discipline. On discipline. You know why he's big on discipline? Because James is big on, here it is, surprise, surprise, discipleship. Discipleship and discipline go hand in hand. Discipleship and discipline go hand in hand. 
that if we're going to be following Jesus, if we're going to be Jesus followers, we have to be a people of discipline, right? We have to be a people of discipline, knowing the price, knowing what it means to deny ourselves and pick up the cross and follow Jesus. And so the book of James is, is really instructing us on the discipline of the heart. What does it mean to discipline our heart? The intentions of our heart. To discipline our tongue. A lot of teaching on the language, on the tongue, right? In the book of James. Beware of the tongue. The tongue is like a, a, a set of, you know, it's like wild language, right? It can set your whole life on fire. Uh, and you see that echoing out of the book of Proverbs, that the power of life and death is on the tongue, right? Um, the body, James is big on body. James is big on discipline of the life. James has a lot to say about financial discipline. And we didn't read a lot of those passages, right? There's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to in James. But James has a lot of teaching on financial Fiscal responsibility, economic responsibility, that if we really read James, if we really meditate on those particular passages in James that deal with economics and finance, I don't know about you, but I find myself convicted quite often. Now, there are some clear passages where it seems as if he's talking about um, how, for instance, a Christian worker or let's say a, a Christian business owner could be too harsh on his or her workers, right? And you see that towards the end of the book of James. But James not only talks about that, he talks about what we are to do with our money, how we are to serve with our money, that we are stewards over our financial goods, that we don't possess it the same way the world possesses it. I'll say that again. James is teaching us that we ought not to treat money the same way the world treats money. It's a, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. For in the world, right, that, that kind of context outside of the kingdom of God, folks approach money like a god. And Jesus talks about that, mammon. And the irony is when we approach our possessions with a mentality that says, this is mine, the irony is that the very things that we possess actually possess us. We are enslaved. We are enslaved. We are in We are, we're caught up, right? And Jesus' ethic, Jesus' life, which, J which, which James is articulating here in his letter, is, a, is an ethic of letting go. An ethic of a, of a, of a kind of loose, holding of our goods, loose, not in a careless sense, but loose in the sense of a stewardship. You know that term steward? Because we use that a lot, especially as evangelical Christians. We are to be stewards over. Stewards means that we oversee, but we don't possess. That's what that word means. We oversee our goods. We don't possess our goods. So I want us to think about our car our apartment, our homes, our material possessions. I want us to think about how can we approach those things with a different mindset, a kingdom mindset that says, you know what? These are good gifts that God has given me to steward, to oversee. 
for the benefit of others, for the benefit of others, right? So there's a lot here about this word discipline, discipline over finance, discipline over our body, discipline over our tongue, our heart, right? What we do here in New Life Fellowship, this whole business of EHS, emotionally healthy spirituality, part of what's happening there is learning how to be stewards over the gifts of our emotions, not just ignoring our emotions, not ignoring our inner world, but really paying attention to it and allowing God, the, God, the Holy Spirit to cultivate that in a healthy way. So discipline is key. And then finally, another major theological theme in James is this. God is God. <laughs> and you are a creature on earth. <laughs> is, that, is that humbling or what? <laughs> That's a good way to start the day. Every morning. God is God. God, you're God. I, I'm just here. Order my steps, Lord. Order my, my this, this is a gift. You've given me another day, Lord. Your grace and your mercy is new this morning. Lord, I give you back my life. Lord, I, I want to think your thoughts today, Father. It's a good prayer in the morning. Lord, uh, take control over my tongue. Help me, to be a, help me to be a faithful steward over my eyes, Lord, and over my ears, what I see and what I hear. Let my body, which is your temple, Lord, let it be sanctified unto your service. Imagine every day we wake up in the morning and we pray like that earnestly from the heart, right? Like, Lord, you're God, not me. And we have to be intentional about that. We have to be intentional about that because that doesn't come easy to us. We live as if we are autonomous. We live as if we are, in other words, our own lords, free to do whatever we want to do. The Bible says that we are not our own. The Bible says we have been purchased. This is an interesting economic language there. Purchased with the high price, with a costly price of Christ's own blood. And he's purchased us back from the dominion of darkness and death, Right? We're either a slave to sin, Paul says in Romans 6 and 7, or a slave to righteousness. But we're going to be a slave to something. And when I think that I'm really free, I'm probably enslaved to sin. <laughs> right? So unless we are careful about ordering our steps, or rather, let me put it this way, because God is the one who orders our steps. Unless we're, we're, not, unless we're careful about offering our lives back to him every day, we'll find ourselves probably going down some dark paths. And so the key of discipline is there over and over again in the book of James. God is God. You are a creature on earth. Therefore, live accordingly. And so what I want to do is just read our final scripture out of James. Turn with me to uh, James 1. 22 to 25, James chapter 1. And, and, and this is a good verses like 22 good, to 25. Uh, farewell uh, scripture for us. As we leave James today, this is something that we want to bless you. This is something that we want to really remember. So let, let's, just, let's just receive this into our hearts as we, as we approach it. Starting at verse 22 in chapter 1 of James. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Let me give you the New York City translation. 
the Urban Translation. Probably the book, the Brooklyn Translation. You guys, many of you know that I'm from. Do not listen to the word and then play yourself. <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> then it goes on. Do what it says. I mean, that's it. That's really the take. That's it. Those two sentences, we're done. We're done. Do what it says. How many times we fall into all kinds of brokenness because we simply don't do what it says? Like that simple. We, I mean, we go to seminary, Bible studies, theology, oh, I, this, this and that. And it's like so simple. It's like, just do what it says. Do what it says. But I can't do it. Amen. I know. I can't do it either. We need grace. But with the grace of God given to you, do what it says. But, you know, here, here's where the struggle is. And we're going to look at this when we look at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Did you know that the first question offered in the Bible was a question by the devil? The serpent? The serpent? The devil? And the first question in the Bible is a theological question, which is a, which is a, a warning for all theologians, for all people who like to think about God. The question is this. Did God really say... The first question, did God, did God really say, and, and look at James's antidote to the lie of Satan. Do what it says. <laughs> do what it says, right? Just do what it says. So what does that mean? Partly obedience doesn't come easy to us, but obedience. Jesus says it. He says, why do, you call, why do you call me? He says this in the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew. You can look this up between chapters 5, 6, and 7. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do what I tell you to do? Right? Isn't that crazy? Like, Lord, Lord, but yet you don't do what I command you to do. And then he has some choice words after that, right? Because it's right after that, he says, many will come to me on the day of judgment saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, that, and that in your name? And Jesus will say, he's like, I'll say unto them, I never knew them. So we can be living a life where we think we're doing God's will, or in fact, we're not. We can be living a life where it's like, I'm doing God's will. I'm serving. I'm... And Jesus is like, but I never knew you. And you call me Lord, and I've told you to do a few things. You've never done it, which means you're walking to the beat of your own drum. Discipleship means discipline. Who's discipline? Jesus is discipline. We do what he says. Lord, you're Lord, right? I know we're not in a, in a sort of kingdom mindset, politically speaking. We live in a democratic age, right? Representational democracy of whatever you may want to call that, or if that's even a reality right now. But if we were living uh, in a monarchy, right? If we were living, or in a darker sense, in a fascist, totalitarian, right? We would know what it means to be obedient. When the king calls you, you go, right? But, but, but we're Americans, of a Western uh, uh, particular mindset of democracy. And so we have been influenced by a certain notion of freedom 
So it, the idea of obedience is foreign to us. In fact, we tell our kids, you got to do what I tell you to do. Do what I tell you to do. Do what I say. Don't do what I do because I'm an adult. Because when you become an adult, you're free. Then you can do whatever you want. It's contrary to the logic of any kingdom mentality. Jesus is like, wait a minute. If you're going to follow me, you got you to do, do what I say. And he, he assures us. He says, but listen, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you're going to find rest for your soul if you do what I tell you to do. So don't think of it as a hard taskmaster. When Jesus tells you to forgive your enemies and to love them, I know it seems super hard and difficult, and it is from the beginning, but in the long term, it's the very kind of practice that gives your heart rest. Have you ever lived a life where you had enemies? I mean, some of us are like, man, I got frenemies. I got enemies that are friends that are, never mind. It's like, man, I can't, I got no rest. So, so back to the scripture here, check it out. 23, anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at him himself, excuse me, goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. Isn't that funny? James has humor. The Bible has humor. You can't read that with a sober face. If, if you're reading that with like a straight face, you're, you're too holy for the Bible. That's humor. That's called irony. Philosophers like Socrates knew the power of irony. Kierkegaard is the master of irony. The Bible is filled with irony. The cross is the perfect image of the ironic. That God, who is omnipotent, would pick up human flesh and die on a Roman cross. That a Jew is hanging on the tree for the salvation of the world is ironic through and through. And this is irony, and good irony has a lot of humor in it, in a, in a holy sense, in a holy sense. And he's like, how silly is this? Somebody looks in the mirror, he's like, oh, okay. And then I leave the mirror, and I completely forget what I look like. This is, this is, this is silly. And, and he's saying this is what it's like when we approach God's word, and we don't do what it says. We don't do what it says. So... Verse 25, and this is where we want to park, and then I want to talk a little bit about five, ten minutes on freedom, and then we're going to do a little group work here. Verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. For those of you who are underlining Bible or you want to write out the scripture, that's a good thing to underline or to write out. I want to read that part again, the beginning of verse 25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law. And the operative word there, the operative phrase, the word that's doing the work is the word law. Perfect law, because we're going to look at that. That gives freedom. It's another major word, okay, for us. So law and freedom, law and freedom. I want those two words to stand out for you in your mind. And continues in it. Oh, I love it. Don't just turn to it, have a good Bible study, and go home and forget everything you learned. But continues in it. He's quoting Jesus. Read the Gospel of Matthew at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, chapter 7. Jesus says, if anybody who hears my teaching and puts it into practice, the Greek there is deeply similar. 
who's abiding in these words, who's putting into practice, Jesus says that person will be like a house that's built on a solid rock. So that when the storms come and the winds and the waves beat against the, 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 the house, the house will remain standing. How, how, do I, how do I not fall under the pressure? Jesus said, you heard my teaching? Do what I said. And when the trials and storms of life come, you will have a solid rock. You'll be able to stand. You'll be able to abide in peace in the house in the midst of the storm. While other people's homes, metaphorically speaking, are crashing down because they heard the teaching of Jesus, but Jesus says they didn't put it into practice. 